Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper at BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. After becoming the third country in outer space in the early 1960s, Canada's involvement in the space sector has been waning in recent years, due in part to declining investments from the government. This is according to one Mike Greenlee. He is the new group president of Vancouver-founded aerospace giant MDA, which has been reorienting itself more towards the American market in recent years, and it's in the process of reincorporating down in the United States as well. So after about six months on the job, Greenlee, he's joining us on the show today to discuss his vision for the company as well as for the space industry here in Canada and where he sees MDA fitting into all of it. Later on, our weekly technology panel featuring Progressive CEO Ali Pordad and Women in Equity Lab co-founder Amiel Lake are going to discuss the latest industry news. But first, MDA President Mike Greenlee. Next year marks the 50th birthday of the Vancouver-founded aerospace giant MDA, or McDonnell Detweiler & Associates, as it was originally named. Now, the firm is perhaps best known as the maker of the robotic Canada arm, and it's been assisting astronauts on space missions since the 1980s. But MDA also has a long history of developing and launching satellites and providing space imagery. And it's also pivoted towards the American market over the years, reincorporating in the United States under a new parent company, Maxar Technologies. And joining us today is the new group president of MDA, it's Mike Greenlee. He's been around for about six months. And Mike, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. So you spoke at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade recently about Canada's need to develop a long-term strategy for space. And uh, the question I have right now is, what is the risk of if Canada doesn't really develop a long-term plan here? Um, the biggest risk really is the, well, there's a few risks, I guess. One of them is the, the, the link to the Canada's um, high-quality job sector. Um, space tends to develop um, very high-quality positions um, in the science, technology, engineering, and math fields or STEM-based jobs. Um, our company alone, for example, in MDA, we would have about 1,900 employees and about 1,266 or you know, 67, 70% would be STEM-based jobs. So you always have a higher proportion than normal. So that industrial base that's been established across the country over the last uh, 50, 60 years of Canada participating in space um, is very well established. So um, the way that that economy works is, is in some of the tasks that were originally hard that the government funded and got us into, you know, we can do some of those now just commercially, but all the next generation of really hard space projects and continuing with space exploration, they need a government strategy and government support for those programs so that the Canadian government can collaborate with other nations to do them. And then the industrial base can go through its next uplift in capability for the next generation of space technologies and capabilities. So one of the big areas of importance of a space strategy is to continue to drive forward that industrial base that relies on uh, government-focused funding for the more complex uh, space exploration and space operation activities. The second area would be uh, inspiration and aspiration. We tend to find over history that 
Canada's participation in space and the astronauts doing their missions as a result of Canada's commitment to space programs is very inspirational uh, to the Canadian population and creates great aspiration in youth. So it gets more people interested in science and technology, uh, education and careers. And so if Canada ever faded away from that position, you'd have an, an economic uh, impact and you'd also have a, an inspirational impact, I would suggest, in the country. Well, if, you know, let's say hypothetically, the government is hit by inspiration tomorrow, what would you like to see with regards to collaboration with industry about developing some sort of long-term plan going forward? Is this collaboration going to be an absolute necessity if we want to have a long-term plan in Canada? Um, definitely. And to Canada's credit, um, the uh, Honorable Navdeep Bain is the current uh, Minister of uh, Innovation and Science in Canada. Um, you know, they've done great consultations in the last few years. So they created a space advisory board. They've run sessions with industry. The Canadian Space Agency has consulted with industry. Um, they've got a lot of really great inputs all across the country on the uh, current status of Canada's capabilities and people's ideas on where we could go in the future in space. Um, those inputs have been collected and consolidated uh, into various forms of draft space strategies, we're told. We can see that work because it's inside government. And so, you know, there's been a great interaction and dialogue that have occurred there. And, uh, you know, and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully a space strategy will come out at some point. And tell us a little bit about what you see the role for MDA in the Canadian space industry, because a lot of people are out there, they're saying that, well, Maxar Technologies is the new parent company. It's, it's incorporated in the United States. Uh, you guys have been pivoting in recent years towards that U.S. market, of course. Where does MDA fit in right now with regards to the future of the Canadian space industry? Yeah, so MDA, um, uh, the 1,900 people that work for me and the legal entity MDA is absolutely a Canadian company. Uh, you're correct that it will become a subsidiary of the American uh, parent company, Maxar, um, which will have four companies today underneath it. Um, but MDA is the Canadian business, um, you know, within Maxar, which is quite common in all kinds of industries. As people grow up, the Canadian market's only so large and you have to export worldwide. And then you figure out how you're going to access greater global markets. So as McDonald Deadwater and Associates was maturing and getting bigger and bigger, you know, it correctly identified that, you know, in many of these sectors, the United States is half the world market. So if you want to continue to grow, it's great to have better access to that market. And in things like space, especially military or intelligence, more classified space work, you need to be, you know, an American company to be able to have access to that. Um, and that makes perfect sense as well. So, um, so we will get growth from that for sure, which is excellent. Um, but, uh, you know, my job is to run NVA with the 1,900 people at five cities across the country and then to get exports from Canada to other countries worldwide. And uh, we will absolutely continue to do that with uh, technology developed in Canada, intellectual property registered in Canada, employees employed in Canada, and taxes paid in Canada. So we're, we're Canadian. Uh, we're just inside a more uh, dynamic international firm now. And a lot um, of our role, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was, was going to say you mentioned about our role. Like, I, yeah. I just think that our role is to continue to be that leader. You know, we are the biggest space company in Canada. So our role is to be there to support the Canadian Space Agency and the Department of National Defense and their space activities. But I also have a role to recognize that the economy in Canada is 80 to 90 percent small business. And I need to engage the smaller businesses across the country to be able to access their innovation and bright ideas and make sure that they're included in our path forward.
Well, and on that topic, can you tell us a little bit? I know maybe a little bit early, but a little bit about the launch prep program that you guys are working on and how that would uh, fall into line with your you know hope for small businesses here in Canada. Yeah, I think it's important. Like, the, you know, a lot of these fields are really complex. If you look at the next generation of space for us, it's going to be a lot of artificial intelligence um, uh, based activities. So we'll have AI based robotics um, operating further out into space, and then we'll have AI based analytics analyzing Earth imagery um, uh, for radar and optical and other sensors. So, um, you know, that's a very diverse field, and you need all the expertise you can get your hands on. And so, um, in a company like Canada, with all the various small to medium business, in addition to the activities happening in universities, you know, from our selfish perspective, you want to be able to tap into that. But also from our responsibility perspective, you know, if we're going to get really large programs from government, then you, we should be making sure that we properly engage, you know, the, the Canadian industrial base. Now, we we do have a strong, you know, supply base across the country, hundreds of companies. Um, we buy from, but it's sometimes difficult for a small business to interface and get our attention because you're just a big company doing things. So we're going to create a thing called the MBA Launchpad, which I've been discussing, and it's going to be a full-time staffed office um, to interface with small to medium business across the country so that uh, people can come at any time and have a, a well-listened-to conversation about what a small or medium business is up to what they have to offer and how they think it could support the market or the types of activities and programs that MDA is interested in and try to find ways to collaborate and include them on our on our path to the future. Um, and so by having this dedicated office, we feel that, you know, uh, the small and medium businesses will have a more satisfactory interaction with us. And then I can have dedicated staff to go and find small and medium businesses with their niche capabilities uh, to be able to enhance what we're offering. Do you also see maybe opportunities to collaborate with some of some of the big startups the uh, that are launching here? We, we have a lot of these space startups that see a lot of opportunity because the cost of getting into orbit it's much cheaper than it ever was before. Are, are there opportunities for partnership between you and some of these startups? Yeah, definitely. I totally think so. Um, and um, you know, like you say, it's it, it is easier to get into space, but space is still complicated and hard. Um, and so for us to have 50 years experience operating um, in orbit around the Earth and launching um, satellites and other craft into space, um, participating in uh, providing components to uh, the rockets that have been to the moon. And, uh, you know, we have uh, elements of the rovers on Mars for the last 14, 15 years. So we, we have a lot of experience. And so uh, a startup with a great business idea um, and a lower cost or accessibility to the space market, that's great. And there's hundreds of them popping up all over the place all the time. But certainly, um, you know, they can benefit from us because we've got that experience over 50 or 60 years. And uh, we can benefit from them because they've got the, the latest bright idea and, you know, maybe some investment behind them to go and get something done. So I think there's a great opportunity to collaborate there. Well, Mike, I'm also curious about you personally, because uh, you're, you're relatively new to MDA, uh, joining the company about six months ago. How has the journey been getting into MDA? What have you discovered? Uh, what, what are your hopes moving forward with the company? Yeah, so it's been excellent for me, to be honest. I came to join MDA because, you know, I feel it's important. You know, it's a, it is a strong Canadian company. It is becoming now a Canadian company that's part of a larger international company. Um, I have that management experience in my past in large defense companies with places like General Dynamics or L3 Technologies where I've worked before. 
um, in the Canadian, you know, uh, businesses that are part of a bigger company. So I can bring that expertise to the current transitional situation that we're going through. So that's a great fit. Um, I think I have a lot of pride. Canadians have a lot of pride. Recent polling data has shown that people are very proud of Canada's accomplishments in space, and, and certainly I share that. So I feel it's a very important job, which is which is very motivating. Um, in terms of coming into the, what have I discovered is uh, just you know an extraordinary depth of talented people. Like I said before, about 70% of the population in STEM-based jobs. Um, a lot of people have been around here for 20 and 30 years because you know they're passionate about the space sector and we're the leading space company in the country so they they stick around and and enjoy the careers here so that the, the depth of talent is is really deep my other big discovery i think is that just the the opportunity in the market so i was generally aware of the space market i came from aerospace and defense but you know now that i've dug into it you know it really is taking off the the, the low accessibility to low earth orbit is causing a, an explosion in new projects and opportunities for Earth observation and communication around the Earth, but then the next generation of, um, you know, sort of new space activity um, to be able to um, look at things like uh, space mining, space tourism, people want to put hotels up in orbit so that people can go up and vacation in space, and then the next generation of deep space exploration to the Moon and Mars, you know, will all take off over the, like, just the next you know, seven to ten years, it's not very far away. So so there's a lot of uh, new opportunity for a company like MDA to be involved in a growing space economy. Uh, tell you what, uh, when the prices come down a little bit, I, I'm totally down for some of the first trips for space tourism. It, it would be a fascinating thing, but uh, hopefully no, I think, you, you'll, I think, you'll make the trip too, right? Yeah, no, I know. I think it'll take off. Like, you, you know, like some of these uh, businesses are advertising some pricey things, like, you know, as high as sort of, you know, $750,000 a night for a week kind of thing to go up and experience a, a week in orbit around the Earth. But, you know, there'll be people that'll pay for that. Those guys will have successful business models, and then that, of course, will just cause others to do it, and the price will come down and down and down. So it's it's very interesting for what the opportunity lies for people to be able to have that experience in the next generation. Well, Mike, I, I wish you all the best of luck as you continue on with MDA, and I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. No problem. Anytime. Thanks for calling. That's Mike Greenlee, Group President of MDA. Joining us this week for our weekly technology panel, it is Progressa CEO Ali Pordad and Emiel Lake. She's an entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC. She's also the co-founder of Women's Equity Lab. Ali, Emiel, thank you guys both for making time for us on the show today. Thank you for having us. So why don't we start off with the Hyperloop? This is that real cool transportation technology. I, at least I hope it's going to be cool and it works. And uh, people, as they get into these giant tubes and go at high speeds, they're, they're not crushed to death through this. But uh, we have the CEO of a Toronto-based company that's Transpod Incorporated. He says the company is going to begin testing its technology in France since it's not getting enough political support here in Canada. And he's even threatening to relocate the company to head uh, to a new headquarters in Europe. Ali, I'll throw this over to you. I mean, are Canadian innovations, are they at risk of perhaps being whisked away to other jurisdictions if we can't give them enough support here at home? Absolutely, Tyler. I think they are at risk uh, for a number of reasons. We spoke about them on prior shows before, but everything from policy to uh, just outright, uh, you know, subsidies uh, right down to the tax level. 
uh, you know, the CEO is uh, is looking for support from the government. I think this is a, a technology that requires a, a heavy level of support, um, and and it's going to be virtually impossible to get it off the ground without that support. So, it, I mean, we know that. I mean, countries like France have a history of actually backing large technological projects in in the transportation field. You know, the Concorde was uh, was a French project for the most part. It had other countries as part of the alliance. Um, it, it also, I think, invested pretty heavily in high-speed rail uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, is this just a good grab for France and recognizing that it's really going to be the next wave of uh, mass transportation, particularly between uh, major cities? Kirk, I think you are absolutely right in that France has had a history of being leaders in adopting new transportation technologies. The TGV has been around and was up until recently, I believe, the fastest train in the world. So they've they've created a, a name for themselves and uh, they've also spent a lot of money investing in building up their startup ecosystem. So I do think this marries very well with where France would like to be on the world stage, both from a transportation perspective and also from an innovation perspective. Is risk, Emil, that maybe the Canadian government is taking a wait-and-see approach when it needs to maybe be bold in the transportation sector, especially with new technology like this? It's not like we have a small country that well, can't use well, I hope, it. Well, I hope they don't make that as an excuse. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. What's your take on this, Emil? Well, Canada has a checkered past in being... Um, being innovative on the transportation side. I mean, you look here in our own province, in our own city, our issues with Uber to, you know, how we dealt with uh, building more uh, SkyTrain lines. And uh, I think this is a real issue for Canada. And it's unclear why from a policy perspective uh, and a platform perspective that transportation is not a a key issue. But uh, I do hope that the government does change its view on this. It's a really important issue facing Canadians, and it's a great opportunity for innovation. It's actually ironic that the government gets involved with transportation typically when it's too late. With companies like (laughs) Bombardier, you know, they come in after to try to save the day, but they're not getting ahead of the technology. But you could say that in in our instance, Ballard Power and the British Columbia government uh, found itself pretty well neck deep in subsidizing. And but now mm-hmm. Ballard is actually a, a going concern. It, That's right. It, you know, it's got five six hundred employees. It seems to have turned that corner on it. So, shouldn't the lesson here, Ali, be that you, you've just got to stay with it? You, you can't kind of go on the three or five year type of return. You've got to look at these types of things as fifteen, maybe twenty year returns. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. You need to look a, a decade or two decades ahead, and you need to be trying to stay ahead of the technology curve because it's going to quickly catch up to you and surpass you. But it's notable that the company, it's not asking for, say, financial handouts from the government. It really just wants, I guess, the political traction that it needs to have you know, Transportation Canada come in and say, yeah, you have permission to test this technology, which, let's be honest, it's already going to be taking about three kilometers of track in France. Mm-hmm. They're all for it. They're going to need more of that testing ground here in Canada, and they're just not getting that. So beyond financial support, I, I mean, how do we tackle this, Alex? Well, they are going to need both, Tyler. They're going to need the financial commitment as well, because at the end of the day, they're going to be digging. If it's going to be underground, they're going to be digging into government property. So mm-hmm. the government's going to have to step up and 
and actually put in an order on one of these things, unless the private, unless, unless it's going to be purely private sector, which I, it's going to be, it's hard for me to see. Um, I think the government does need to step up with orders as well. And Amiel, there's no doubt too that uh, here in British Columbia, we'd like to have even just a high speed rail link into Seattle, into Portland, maybe, maybe into Los Angeles one day. Uh, you know, when you can't get that, how can you expect that you're actually going to then finance something as daring and leading edge as Hyperloop? I I agree. This is Canada's, um, I mean, this goes back to the issues we've been discussing. They have not been very innovative or forward thinking in how they're going to solve the transportation issues. And I, I can't help but think that BC and, and all of Western Canada would greatly benefit from having instant access or rapid access to the U.S., where we do a, a lot of business there. But that is not something that has been a priority, and, and we haven't seen it on any government agenda for a long time. Yeah, well, there's no doubt it would be great for our tourism industry here to, to have that open access for Americans to come up the West Coast and come to Vancouver, come skiing in the winter, uh, come all year round. If you have, if we had that link, it would be. I mean, our tourism sector already heavily is reliant on on the West Coast, but yeah. this would open up a whole new. And we've been writing about the tourism sector at, at BIV and how it has its troubles. Uh, and one of the things that it has is, is a problem is that yeah, border access is pretty gruesome mm-hmm. on some weekends, and uh, something like a high speed rail where you're you're pre checked uh, when you board uh, the way that you are with a plane, you you get here awfully swiftly. One of the other things that people are making the argument for is it's just going to have better access to talent if we can connect the two cities. So maybe I'll, I'll make a very clumsy uh, segue into our next uh, subject here. But uh, if we're talking about talent within the tech industry, a big issue has been turnover. Amazon is trying to stem the tide to a certain degree. It has a new appeals process where if you are at risk of being fired from the company, they actually let you go to, say, a jury of your coworkers. And I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, is this a potentially, you know, interesting, innovative way of dealing with these turnover issues? Or are there risks that this could be a bit of an unfair process to a certain degree? I do worry that it could be an unfair process. I I mean, to a certain extent, it, it feels like if you aren't popular, um, then you, you might not perform well in that type of trial. Of course, that being said, I, I would hope popularity is linked to what kind of teammate you are. And, and you know, that's what any company needs is, a, you know, a colleague that's not outperforming everyone, but performing in line with everyone and moving the whole team forward. As an employer, Ali, uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at your body yeah, language nervous, going, yeah. oh, okay, I hope that doesn't come where I'm coming. <laughs> I, I give them some credit for, for being innovative, but I think this, this there's, I see quite a number of risks that they're exposing themselves to. Uh, you know, employees are not HR people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why you have HR people to have these conversations. So, And presumably, they're... <laughs> There must be a whole wave of privacy issues here. Yeah, I mean, not not, not everything is um, out there in terms of what an employee might 
have in the way of a problem. Human rights issues, employment issues, there's a whack load of uh, considerations that HR people are trained to deal with. Yeah. And it's it's probably a good reason why they're in place. So if you, in fact, do get fired, you're going to sue the, <laughs> the 12 jurors yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. No, that's that, <laughs> Great. I mean, that's one of the risks going through my mind right now. I mean, anybody, you know, people could get caught in a in a class, in a lawsuit, right? Everybody could get caught in a lawsuit if the person's not happy. Yeah. How big of, it, of an issue, though, is it for you just as an employer when it comes to this turnover problem that we are having? Having maybe even in Vancouver specifically, where we see competition, uh, you know, amping up as well. What, what does this present to you? We we've been lucky at Progressa. I mean, knock, I'm knocking on wood right now. Uh, That's but, our, it's our bride, by the yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but about. I mean, certainly other companies around town in the technology space are are feeling that for sure. They do see a lot of turnover. Uh, it, we did see turnover in the past, but um, you know, we sort of brought on the right uh, talented people at this at the top of the technology. Uh, ecosystem that we've created to foster uh, a better retention rate. And so we don't have that issue in Vancouver, but in Toronto, we, I mean, certainly you'll see it depending on on the type of business you, you operate. So we have more of a call center uh, you know, operation in Toronto, and certainly we see a lot of turnover there. And yet, Amiel, what I sense from this with Amazon is an appreciation of the fact that um, you're, you're getting a lot of turnover in this sector. And it does not want to become as mercenary, say, as old style employee uh, employer relations were in some, say, factories uh, of the past. Is it just maybe not quite getting the right way to address this, do you think? Well, I think they're trying something new. And uh, we're all very aware that the employment culture uh, in tech and in you know, all companies has changed considerably over the last few years. We are aware of all kinds of issues from diversity issues to, you know, as Ali said, human rights issues. And so I do applaud them for trying something new. I would think that HR would be involved in uh, this type of scenario. And, and I think it is a smart way in trying to remove um, all the decision-making of a good team from the manager who may not be the right person. If you go back to maybe 10, 15 years ago, Amiel, you're an employee somewhere and maybe you're having trouble at work. Would it be something that you would consider or would you go to one of the alternatives, which is maybe some sort of one-on-one uh, -on -one session with your manager? Well, I guess I'm trying to think. Um, I would, I would, like to explore both avenues yeah. and I, I'm not trying to be Switzerland here, but <laughs> I do think there's a tremendous value in good one-on-one -on -one sessions, but you know, they have to be done properly. Uh, they have to be an open conversation. Um, and I would also like to get feedback from my peers and I would like, you know, my employee to get feedback from their peers as well. Yeah, good. There is, but there is good uh, HR practice around the so-called 360. Mm -hmm. where, you know, where you really do have both colleagues, subordinates, and uh, bosses all providing you with some sort of insight on how you're performing. The it, question is, you know... How is it, it communicated? And, and at what point? Yeah. You know, it, it, when things are too far down the road, uh, where you've got, obviously, uh, an employer saying that, look, I, I think we have to let this person go, and do you intervene then? I mean, it's, it's way more important to be doing this early on. And yet uh, what I wonder about in this case is, is the tech sector too busy in some respects to, to, uh, to, uh, um, you know, to wrapped with its own, uh, progress to 
get itself into the weeds on managing, nurturing employees? I, I don't think it can afford to be. I think uh, I think there's too many good companies out there that make it a priority. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if a company doesn't make it, their people a priority and how they handle their people, it's going to quickly catch up to them. Um, so, I, you know, I, I err on the side that I think they're just trying to be innovative. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The timing of this delivery of this communication is everything. If it happens early, then that's great. You know, you want more people at the table. You want that 360 feedback, as you called it, because you're giving that person an opportunity to, opportunity to uh, rebuild. But if it's too late in the game, then I, I see a bunch of potential issues that could, you know, very quickly arise that... Uh, probably is not what they were hoping. Well, excellent. Ali, Amiel, thank you guys both for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having us. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC, as well as a co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a review for us. And be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. 